Developing a product requires careful balance between engineering, sales, design, and customer service. The founding CTO of a company often needs to take on each of these responsibilities, because when the company only has a few people, there's nobody to delegate these different tasks to. Colin Zanstra is the CTO at Flowcast, a SaaS tool for accounting close management. It isn't important what that means. We do describe what the product does in this episode, but the actual software product that we are discussing is less important than the general discussions that we have. Colin gives some fantastic and detailed explanations for how to develop a software product from end to end. In the past, Colin worked at MySpace, and after we discussed his current company, Flowcast, we discussed some of what he learned at MySpace and the product development at MySpace and why that social network proved to be less durable than Facebook. We also had some great discussions as to why Google Plus was also less durable than Facebook, despite having all the resources of Google behind it. Also, I should mention that Flowcast is hiring engineers in their Los Angeles office, Flowcast is spelled F-L-O-Q-A-S-T, and Colin asked that I mention that, and I think it was worth mentioning because Colin seems like a great product guy, and Flowcast seems like a company where the sky's the limit. I also want to thank my friend Patrick Matheson for connecting Colin and myself. Patrick is a good friend and a writer on Quora. If you want to read some great stuff about venture capital and other strange things, read Patrick Matheson's material on Quora. So I hope you like this episode. Colin Zanstra is the CTO and co-founder of Flowcast. Colin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me. Your company, Flowcast, makes software for accountants to do close management. In this conversation, I would like us to focus on the process of developing a product idea and bringing that idea to reality from the engineer's point of view. There are a lot of other podcasts that focus on the design point of view or the end user's perspective or the business or the sales aspects of product development, and I do want to touch on those things, but the main focus of this conversation will be on the engineering and your role as CTO as you were developing Flowcast and perhaps the lessons that people can learn more broadly from this particular case study. So let's start from the top down. Flowcast is close management software. What does that mean? Yeah, so the close in accounting terms is basically the work that has to get done in a given month for an accounting department. So really what that closed management software is really at its heart just workflow management software that is designed specifically for accounting departments. And what that means in practice is, you know, we're pretty similar to a typical work management software like Jira or Basecamp or Asana, except that we're designed specifically for accountants in the way that Envision is designed specifically for designers. Hmm. So, you know, we'll, we'll kind of look at the very specific workflow of accounting departments and build something that's going to fit into like that sort of keyhole really you know, snugly and kind of just try to accomplish the goals that the accountants are doing every month but don't have a way to, to track, if that makes sense. I love the Envision analogy both because 
we had the Envision CTO on about a week ago, and also because Envision is this product where you look at the process of prototyping, and in some light it sounds like a narrow problem where why would anybody buy software to do this design prototyping thing? There's such a narrow market, but it's actually a giant market, and Mm -hmm. Flowcast seems similar. It's this very specific problem but the closer you look at it, the more surface area you realize this problem takes up. And that was something that I kind of learned in this process. Is just, you know, it's amazing that a SaaS application like ours could be sold into, you know, the LA Lakers, who are our clients, and a gold mining company, who are our clients. And, and you know, we sell into senior living facilities. And just all across the board, we have basically like basically any every vertical that you could think of kind of does accounting and and subsequently needs accounting software which is one of the things that i find so you know sort of incredible about saas applications and close management is something that even applies to my business i was looking at flowcast and i was thinking well i have you know maybe 10 or 20 advertisers per mm-hmm. quarter different advertisers and there's this protracted process of First, you get a contract going, and then you get an invoice going, and then you have to clear that invoice, and that invoice like gets cleared at some point while the contract is going on, and you've got all these loose ends, and nobody wants to deal with all these loose ends by just interacting with their inbox. So, mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of these narrow or seemingly narrow SaaS tools end up doing is there is you know, so much work that you do through your inbox and through Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel. And mm-hmm. what these what these narrow SaaS applications tend to do is they strip out some functionality and they make it like 10x easier. So there are lots of accounting tools. Why wasn't this particular problem solved before? You know, I think that it, it sort of came on the cusp of the advent of the cloud and cloud accounting specifically. A big part of what we do is bring together disparate data sources. So, you know, now that people are storing all of their financial documents in places like Box.com or or Dropbox or Ignite or whatever it is, and they also have cloud ERPs, you know, all of their, their finances are now in the cloud, and it created this incredible opportunity where a software like ours can kind of step in and bring together those different disparate data sources and put them kind of on one screen. So, you know, a big part of our business is sort of connecting the dots for people and pulling data from various different places across the internet and, you know, to use an accounting term, reconciling it, which is basically just a comparison of that data and kind of alerting people to, you know, any mistakes or issues that they have sort of cross-system. And I think that that just wasn't a thing when all of your data was housed in a specific spot, like in a, a shared drive. But now, now that we're doing everything in the cloud, I think that there's just a tremendous opportunity for solutions like ours that, that are really geared towards looking at different systems and sort of aggregating data from different systems. You know, we're kind of entering this new phase where it's great that we're, we're on the cloud and we've got all these different systems doing all these different things, but how do we make sure that the data on all those various different systems is adding up and is what it should be? And so, you know, I, I think that this problem is not unique to accounting specifically. 
but I, you know, it just so happens that accountants do a lot of different cloud computing at this point, and we're kind of there to help you manage that process. Did you understand from day one that this product was going to need heavy integration support from all the other tools that people use for accounting? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, like when we when we first started the product, it was more geared towards just like a, a very specialized like kind of task list. And it kind of just goes to show that, you know, it's almost cliche to say that like ideas are meaningless in startups, but like really we had we had no idea that this was even a problem and it only came about once we started talking to people and you know, you kind of get your first initial clients that are like, yeah, you know, we're kind of interested in what you're, you're doing, but hey, like, how about this other thing? Like, this is a real problem for us. How do we, you know, take what you guys are, you have already and like augment it to include, you know, this kind of other issue, you know, having those kind of early clients that, that are willing to work with you and willing to like, you know, tell you their ideas, you know, that, that's how all of this came about. We didn't really know that it was a problem at all until, you know, we, we were out in the field and listening to people. Let's talk about how you got to that point mm-hmm. where you could have conversations with people which required you to actually build a product. Mm-hmm. How did you decide on that feature set of the first iteration of the product that you showed to potential customers? Yeah, so, you know, originally, kind of even before that, I had, you know, kind of quit my last job and was looking for a new startup, and therefore I was just getting pitched all the time by different people with with ideas. I'm sure you know as a developer, if you're looking to get into the startup world, you kind of have your pick of the litter when it comes to idea people. And so while I was getting sort of pitched all these ideas, my now co-founder, Mike, pitched me this idea for for accounting software, and he was an accountant previously. And he's like, you know, this. I had this specific problem where it was really difficult to track my, my tasks or my specific workflow in this, you know, in accounting department. And, you know, at the point, we didn't really know if it was a real problem yet, but, you know, it seemed like a decent enough space to try to try something out. So I, we kind of just took that initial idea that he had from actually being, you know, an accountant and ran with it, built a, a very small MVP. I think the MVP took me about, I don't know, a month or something to program with a very a very, you know, kind of crappy design that I, I put together in, in Photoshop, and I don't know Photoshop at all. Just that was enough to put in front of clients and say, like, hey, what do you think about this? And, you know, I was surprised to learn just how receptive people are. You know, if they do have a problem and the problem is big enough, like, you know, they're happy to take a half an hour, 30 minutes, you know, an hour, you know, a week or every month out of their day to kind of, tell you about the problem and you know you can use that to you know get to the next level Hmm. and talk more about that early feedback process with customers because at a certain point you have to start taking their requirements and putting them into engineering Hmm. things you also have to figure out how to connect certain complaints that they may be having with engineering tasks to do can you explain that process in more detail and what you should expect to get out of your early customers and how you turn that into early product development 
that's probably one of the more difficult things because you'll, especially when you're very first starting out, you'll hear all kinds of, you know, different ideas and you'll be pulled in different directions. And at that point, you're just so desperate to sell some software that basically any idea that gets put in front of you that, you know, a client says, like, I'll pay for that, you're, you know, you're immediately hot and bothered and you think, oh, well, this is it. Like, I got to build this. You know, the important thing is to remember that, like, you know, it's important to, like, get to market and get selling software as soon as possible. But at the same time, it's also just as important to really consider every move that you make, you know, because your most limited resource is development time at that point. So, you know, the trick that we kind of used or, or at least, you know, improvised was just trying to get as much feedback as possible and, you know, cross-reference that feedback with, you know, even a handful of people that are that are interested in the product. And, you know, you'll start to notice similarities the more you talk to people and the more similarities that you can kind of identify, then you'll know you really got something right. Once you hear the same thing two or three or four times from independent parties of like, hey, that's a problem, or like, oh, you know, that could really be useful, then you can start to narrow down and as much as possible, iterate, iterate, iterate. Hmm. Build the, the smallest possible version that you can and just get it into people's hands. And as long as you have like a willing and able group of people that will test it out and give you their feedback, you know, you can really trial and error your way into a decent product. That's certainly true. I also feel like there might be a perhaps overly harsh narrative around premature optimization. So what I mean by that is I think for a long time people were mostly focused on this trial and error and just looking kind of around the corner at the near-term optimizations that you can make. I feel like with increasingly higher-level tools and more sophisticated tools, I'm thinking about platform-as-a-service things, I'm thinking about open-source libraries, third-party services like Twilio that save you a lot of time. I guess, full disclosure, Twilio is a sponsor, but I, I, I always use them as they're an example. They're also a client, so... Oh, they're um, also a client. Okay. I mean, yeah. Well, and, but it's also a service that just saves you a lot of time. And so the reason I'm mentioning these things is that because I feel like you get a lot of time savings out of these big platform like building blocks that you can fit together, mm. I feel like you can make... Even early on, you can make more ambitious roadmap decisions rather than just making short-term decisions. I also feel like that can sometimes be valuable because if you focus on the local maxima, you can end up with technical debt that is associated with that local maxima rather than making longer-term bets and asymptoting towards an architecture that will serve you better as you're going to scale. I don't, do you agree that this is a trade-off and that I'm touching on some relevant things, or do you think I'm blowing smoke here? I mean, I, I definitely think that there's there's truth to what you're saying, that, you know, due to advances both in technology and in services, that it's much more possible to do a lot with it little than it was even two years, five years, ten years ago. But I think that, like, the your margin of error when you're just starting out is, is just really low. And if you 
if you kind of whiff on a product, it might be that like the the sort of demoralizing factor kind of gets to you more than anything else that like, mm. you know, you're there, you're let's say you're at a, an accelerator, you're you know, you're just starting out and you've got, you know, a runway in your bank account or whatever and you're kind of month over month you're kind of just like watching that that runway, you know, go down and and you've got like all this sort of pressure and, and anxiety about, you know, are you going to be able to to sell some software? And, you know, at least for us like it, it was super important to just prove that we could get something working and get something that people were were willing to to actually, you know, kind of put their money where their mouth was mm-hmm. and subscribe. So, you know, I, you know, I definitely there's a lot that you can do now with services like Twilio. And, like, I think that it more speaks just to the, the kind of magnitude of what can be accomplished with a one- or two-person development team in sort of a startup environment. And I think that that kind of, you know, more speaks to, like, just the progress of technology hmm. rather than the fact that you could, like, whiff more often or something like that. The more modest statements that I might be able to make about long-term planning in terms of product development might be around testing or continuous delivery. You could put these Mm -hmm. things in place early on as long-term bets or cultural practices that you want to instill even early on, even when you're building a piece of software for like one customer or zero customers. How Mm -hmm. early did you start doing testing and continuous delivery or do you do those things yeah we certainly do them now when we were still in the sort of ideation phase and it was most important you know because you're always weighing what resources that you have most of and so when you know you have more development resources and you actually have paying clients then you know software that works is your number one priority but when you know you have a group of five or ten people that are, you know, not paying for the software and, like, are using it just because they have a problem and you're trying to solve that problem, then if it, you know, has bugs or, you know, if it doesn't work quite right, that's not as important. What's more important then is just that you're moving closer towards, you know, understanding what the problem actually is rather than, you know, having the perfect solution for the problem. So I think, to on the outset of a new tech venture to kind of put a lot of time and energy towards writing really maintainable, solid software, you know, you're a little bit putting the cart before the horse, always respecting just like, you know, what resources you have. If you have the resources, great, do it. It's, it's like, you know, you'll really save a lot of time and effort later down the line with, with tech debt and whatnot, you know, and, and we definitely experienced a good, you know, portion of like after we got off and running, we had this, you know, kind of MVC that I built, and you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to hire my first couple of development hires. Were gracious enough to like take this, this kind of monstrosity that I had written and kind of shape it into a usable piece of code. But you know, you're just always weighing that. Okay, what resources do I have the littlest of or the most of, and how can I leverage what I have to, you know, kind of take the next step? We talked about integrations a little bit earlier, if you're writing accounting software, you have to integrate with Oracle, you have to integrate with Excel. Mm-hmm. How do you test those things? Is it difficult to test around the black box of an externality that has closed source code like Oracle or Excel? Totally. It absolutely is. And it becomes like a, an ongoing project. And, you know, we're still surprised. We're still surprised at 
you know, something coming out of, you know, these ancient ERPs, like Microsoft Great Plains, you know, <laughs> uh, like, it was literally written like 30 years, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, I don't even know, but like these ancient pieces of software that like you just have no idea kind of how they work. And, you know, it's it just, you never stop sort of like iterating on that point. And every new client that we get, it's kind of a new journey into, okay, like, you know, how does this work? And, you know, what is your, you know, your financials going to look like coming out of this, this system? And that's just, you know, part of, of this very unique business of just trying to integrate with these, these kind of ancient giants. And again, it's just like kind of trial and error. You know, every time we sign a new client, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a mystery and a journey to figure out, you know, how, not even just how the black box of Oracle works, but, but how they're using the black box of Oracle. There can be many, many different setups within, you know, a, a single piece of software. So, you know, it's been said before, but like the biggest thing is just having a great customer support team that, you know, will get to know the client well enough that, you know, they'll work with us as we kind of struggle with these kind of black boxes, as you mentioned. This is something that may not be intuitive to engineers who are listening to this show. What is the communication process between the customer support team and the engineering team? Because this is is important because this is where a lot of the feature development or the bug fixes can come from, is closing Mm -hmm. that loop. Yeah, and for us, it was really important early on to get our customer service people really used to JIRA and the way JIRA works and being able to create tasks in JIRA and understand what ITSM is and, you know, how to properly document issues. And that's part of their training at Flowcast. It's like, you know, here's the development team. Here's how, you know, they, they sort of process new issues or tasks or whatever it happens to be. Um and so those two teams work very much in tandem, I think, at most startup companies, or most SaaS companies specifically, because customer service is just absolutely so important, and it oftentimes involves the developer hopping in and, and you know, either seeing if there's an issue or, or, or at least understanding what the client is experiencing or how we can improve or, you know, oftentimes the next idea will come from a conversation that a, a client is, you know, has some misunderstanding about how the software works, and that that ends up leading to, you know, a whole new product or something like that. Do you have any interesting practices around ticketing and how ticketing facilitates communication between the different teams? I don't know if it's necessarily interesting or or novel, but we we definitely had a lot of work go into understanding how to classify tickets, like, you know, what gets priority, what doesn't get priority, what needs to be worked on you know, by a developer, what what can be sort of handled by maybe even a sales person or a customer support person to kind of try to circumnavigate the situation if it's, you know, maybe a shortcoming of the software that we just can't get to. You know, it, it's an ongoing, like, sort of living process, but, you know, suffice to say, having solid ticketing and documentation is paramount. I can't tell you how many times we've gone back to old tickets to figure out you know, how we solve something for, you know, kind of like what you mentioned with Oracle or, you know, one of these other black boxes, you know, we solved something six months ago and now now it's like come up again. And, you know, having that sort of historical information has been absolutely crucial for us. Hmm. And we mentioned InVision earlier. In my conversation with the InVision CTO, 
we talked about how there can be between between the design teams of a company and the engineering teams you can have these silos that are somewhat similar to the development and operations silos that the whole devops thing is trying to rail against how does the relationship between design and engineering work because i look at flowcast and it looks like a product where you have to get the design right because you have a very specific customer in mind you have a very specific workflow in mind so that the relationship between design and engineering seems like it has to be pretty tight-knit there Mm. yeah absolutely and we we actually have our designers you know in with the development team in every respect they're they're at our daily stand-ups they're you know working directly with the developers they're at least somewhat technically inclined and we want to have, you know, kind of information pass from, you know, one department to another as though, you know, through a pane of glass and have, you know, sort of just a constant communication between between those two parties. Just because, as you mentioned, like the product design is so important to a product that is, is filling a very specific niche like ours or like Envision. And so having, you know, I, I've worked at places before where I hardly even talk to product or like the you know, the product would just come as a PRD that's already been sort of like mapped out and thought out and, and finished in every respect. And, you know, you just get it as a development spec and you just build it. You know what I mean? Certainly not so with the way I think startups like ours have to function. You know, it's much more of a conversation and much more of a back and forth. And we've been blessed to have some developers that were former accountants and have kind of made the transition towards, you know, doing development now. And so having those people kind of looped in and in the building, I think that there's probably at least over 10 or 15 accountants. And so we try to, you know, incorporate, you know, feedback from from all of the different departments, design, engineering, sales, support and setup. You know, it kind of all goes into what the product ends up being. When you say you have 10 or 15 accountants in-house, are these people doing things like product management or how do you have enough of, it's like a third yeah. of the workforce? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And another sort of fortunate about building accounting software is it seems that there are quite a lot of people that got into accounting and now realize that it's just not for them. And so now they're looking for, for something else. So a number of our salespeople are former accountants. As I mentioned, our CEO is a former accountant. And I think the majority of our setup and support people are accountants by design because they kind of, you know, in dealing with the accounting departments, they have to be able to speak the lingo and whatnot. We've definitely geared, you know, our, our hiring towards favoring people with an accounting background. And we've just been fortunate in the fact that, I don't know, for whatever reason, people are looking to make a transition out of accounting and get into basically anything else, but still leverage their knowledge of accounting. Yeah, I think we have at least 10 CPAs in the building. And so we've just, you know, in that way, just been blessed. That's pretty interesting. I've talked to a number of companies where they explain that the customer success people or the onboarding people are really well-trained professionals. And it almost sounds like you have to pay a good customer success person, perhaps on par or at least in the same neighborhood as somebody who is doing something like sales or maybe even engineering? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's worth every single penny. 
And that's really counterintuitive for a lot of people listening, I'm sure, because they think, oh, customer service, you know, that's nothing. But in fact, it's actually super important at a lot of these. It's everything. It's everything, yeah. It is everything. It is everything. If you don't have, and you're not going to, you're not going to be able to pay. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you again, but you're not going to be able to pay an accountant, a trained accountant, like a call center salary. No, absolutely not. And you know, you wouldn't want to. I mean, your customer service people are part and parcel with the success of the business. I, I just don't see how you could. I don't know. Maybe other people do it. I don't know, but I don't see how you could have a successful client relations without someone that is super knowledgeable about kind of what you're going through. And, you know, it can instruct you how to use the software. And then, you know, on the back end is able to kind of mine information from the clients about, you know, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, how we can improve. You know, knowledgeable customer success people, I I think, is absolutely paramount. It's also a good moat. I think good customer service is a really strong moat. Totally. Totally strong moat. I mean, you know, every time, you know, we on the development side kind of screw something up or, you know... You know, cause, cause some sort of issue where, like, you know, the site goes down or something like that. You know, having a personalized relationship with these people, our customer set of people definitely have, like, taken the brunt of some angry emails. But, you know, just being able to, if you have somebody that you can reach out to and even write that angry email and get a response back apologizing and trying to, you know, make amends however we can, I think that goes a really, really, really long way. The two product expansion models I've seen for SaaS companies that are solving a very tight vertical, such as Flowcast, seem to be that you can either expand into adjacent markets or you can ladder up and upsell your current customers mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. you know more products, add-ons, you know better support, things like that. I'm not sure which of these strategies you intend to move towards, but can you explain how that strategic forecasting affects your current product development, or does it even affect current product development? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely does. You know, we're definitely at the phase where, you know, ACVs are becoming really, really, really important. Sorry, and what? So we're ACV. Yeah, average contract value. Basically, the the value of of each deal uh, that you're you're sort of okay. signing. And so, you know, basically that number really determines a lot about how you can raise money and, you know, says a lot about what the market is that you're going after. So whatever you can do to raise that average contract value, you know, will really do kind of wonders for your company. And so, as you mentioned, there's kind of two ways to do that. And it's, it's either like upsells with, you know, new products that are, you know, in the same department or kind of trying to expand you know, let's say to different areas of finance or, you know, maybe even something totally different. For us, it, you know, it's definitely something that we, we kind of grapple with and think about a lot. For us, like, you know, the at least at this point, we're kind of under the auspices that building upsells is probably the easiest way or at least the, the most low-risk way to increase our ACVs. And that's mostly because you can, you can know, you can use your current client base to, you know, shop ideas and shop new products um, with pretty low risk. You right. know, you're, you're, once you have a sort of network effect, you can, you know, leverage that network in a really interesting ways to kind of get a great sense of what is going to sell and what isn't before you even build anything. 
so, you know, we're at the point where, like, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for us that, you know, we can just go to our current client base and, and ask, like, hey, you know, would you pay for this if we built it? I think it's more difficult to try to, you know, land and expand into a different... <laughs> Food delivery. Know, uh, <laughs> right, right. Or even, a, even in, like, a different group of finance, right? Because then you yeah. have to, like, leverage your current connection and be like, hey, can I, can you put me in touch with Bob and, you know, the CFO or, or whatever it is, as opposed to using the people that you've already developed a really solid relationship with to just sort of ask. I think that there are certain limits to that, though. You can't always upsell. There's that point where you can't just continually upsell into the current, you know, client base, and you'll, you'll have to expand to, you know, other people in the company or, or whatever it happens to be. also imagine land and expand happening organically where you have so many people using the product some of the people that are using the product are like hey i'm having to bend over backwards to do what i want with this product because it wasn't actually built for that purpose but the Mm -hmm. reason that they're bending over backwards is because there's just nothing in the market for them and so that kind of thing can signal oh well i guess we should build like veterinary software or something yeah yeah, and we've definitely experienced that exact problem. Really? De- absolutely, absolutely. We've had people kind of, you know, trying to shoehorn Flowcast into, right. you know, a fairly different use case. And I think that that can be, you know, really enticing, but also something that, like, you really, 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 really need to think <laughs> about, you know, diverging. You know, we're still a fairly small development team. There's, there's about 12 of us now. So, you know, we, we're not at the point where, like, we can really focus on too many products at a time. So, you know, trying to diverge into or answering requests to, like, kind of shoehorn the software into something different, you know, it goes back to all along the way, you really have to think about what resources you have and how to best leverage them. Yeah, and your incentive structure, I mean, in terms of resources, if you're a company like Google and you have a giant profit flywheel, then, yeah, you can throw off you know, $2 million on a crazy accounting software experiment for veterinarians. And if you're a company like Uber, where your platform is based on subsidies and it only works if you build additional products on top of that platform, then you also have to take a lot of experiments. But if you're in the SaaS, you know, the sort of like SaaS towards a vertical thing, I think your strategy of the the vertical upsell as a potential growth strategy is a lot safer. It's a lot more sensible. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point, like, you know, the other factor to weigh in all of that is like, what is your market size? And if, you know, you have a blue ocean and the market is wide open, you know, then, then why bother trying to, you know, extend yourself and, you know, move into to different departments or move into different products, that just means that you need to scale up more on the sales side rather than the product side. So this is related to a topic I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is where you sometimes have to choose to be internally focused or to be competitor-focused. And mm-hmm. my perspective is that when you are in a greenfield market, mm-hmm. it's okay to be totally internally focused or maybe you want to call it 
customer focused like that's what bezos always says oh we're just focused on the customer we're not competitor focused but when you are in a market with entrenched players and these entrenched players have entrenched workflows you sometimes do want to be competitor focused in certain areas of amazon you know you look at that light sale product that they released on aws and it's just like they're trying to obviate DigitalOcean. They're trying to like just clone DigitalOcean because it works. You know, you do see Amazon do this sometimes when it's com- they take a, what looks like a competitor-focused approach because they see a competitor who is doing something right and they think they can do it better. What are your thoughts on that? Do you have to focus on competing products because you're in this very specific space, or do you feel like you're just customer-focused? I don't think that you honestly can be competitor focus at all. I just don't think that it works. Under any circumstance? Yeah, under any circumstance at all. I just don't I don't think that the model works because there's so much that goes into building a product. And to look on the outside, even if you understand the product well, to look on the outside at a product and then try to replicate that product. Like there's just so much nuance that goes into every small decision and without, you know, Having had developed that nuance or an understanding of why the nuance is there, like I just don't think that it works. Every time that we've looked at one of our competitors and thought, hey, like we should do that, you know, we always came to the, the same conclusion of like we don't really understand why they're doing that and you know, in like the most minute detail and you know, they're the ones that, that like have talked to the clients and, and really understand the problem and they'll probably understand the problem better than we do. And so, like, I, I feel like it's very difficult to emulate a product well. And I can't point to any good implementations where, where I've seen someone kind of just, like, you know, rip off an idea and have it go super, super well. I just think that, like, the, when you're solving a problem like that, you know, to look at a competitor, you know, maybe it's a good idea to, like, just keep tabs on what your competitors are doing and, you know, kind of understanding where the, the market is going, but without having kind of the firm, you know, foundation of why, you know, why it's a problem. Like, I don't see possibility to build a great product. With the, you've seen these Instagram stories thing, right? Where Instagram just copied the Snapchat feature? Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I guess so for people who don't know, Snapchat had this super popular feature called well, they still have this super popular feature called stories and instagram which is a facebook product copied the stories and they did it better than snapchat and this was a brand new feature or this is a feature that hadn't really existed in social networks before and facebook just ripped it off and they totally were open about it they said we're taking this feature because we think it's awesome you look at that and it's like the execution is incredible i do wonder if they're making a deal with the devil when they're doing the feature copying and it feels a little like embrace extend extinguish or i don't know i mean obviously the execution is wonderful i love having stories in instagram you might have seen the snap s1 where you see the results of stories going into instagram it looks like it has cut down the snap user base do you think that facebook is making a deal with the devil here when it's sort of implicitly saying that it is okay to be competitor-focused? It's a great question, and I'm honestly kind of surprised that they, they would sort of so blatantly come out and say that, you know, they're basically recycling that idea. 
I'm surprised because people use Instagram and Snapchat for very different things. So, so it seems strange to me that they'd, even if you know now Instagram has stories that people would use them for the same, you know, uses or whatever, or you know, same content or you know, it wasn't uncommon for people to have both a Snapchat and an Instagram. And I don't imagine that you know people are going to start using, you know, just one, just Instagram instead of instead of Snapchat. And so it surprises me because I'm hard-pressed to believe that, you know, Facebook didn't really understand what the use case was behind stories, you know, in Instagram and how people would use them as opposed to how people would use them in Snapchat. Hmm. You know, clearly they did their research and clearly they determined that there was a use case and people people would be, you know, kind of jazzed about it. But... You know, again, like I, I think that they're trying to capture something different, probably than what what Snapchat is, and it, it might work for them. I, I think if they were trying to just like clone Snapchat and clone the all of the use cases of Snapchat, you know, I, maybe they could pull it off. But you know, I would say 99 times out of 100, you know, it's just not going to work. I think it'll be an interesting case study to watch because it has added something to Instagram. It has added a dynamic. And, and real-time feeling of Instagram and, and an emphasis on video in Instagram that did not exist before. Mm. And it feels like they have snatched a little bit of the Snapchat thunder. But there does seem to be, maybe this is imagined, but it does seem to be a competitor focus here that, I don't know. It's it's like this is what got. I mean, this is sort of what got Google into trouble with the Google Plus stuff. Was like mm-hmm. the competitor focus would ended up just being mm-hmm. such a massive waste of resources. But absolutely, I don't know. Different case study. Yeah. I guess it's. And I mean, why would you say that is? I mean, you know, I have my theories about why it didn't work, but but you hmm. know, I'm curious why what, Google what your why Google are. Plus didn't work. Yeah, I think it was an execution issue. I think they mm. could have done it. It was just. You know, something something went wrong in the execution. I think they, like, maybe the, how they tried to blanket all of their services with, like, integrations. And Google has so many product lines. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. to do this massive alignment and orchestration to, in order to get everything right. And it sort of felt like, you know, it, they didn't decentralize it well enough, you know? Like, they could have... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's hard to remember in retrospect exactly what it was like at the time, but I think I remember just using Google Plus. And I was like, at the time, I actually I remember I posted a couple things about this. I, I was like, well, there goes Facebook, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that it came down again to they they didn't really understand the problem that they were solving, and I I think that you know my previous job was at MySpace, like during the sort of the decline. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and so like when I joined, it was kind of like the the high watermark of popularity, and and I was there kind of for the, the sort of the mass decline and hemorrhage of users. You know, I think that the reason that Facebook was able to come along and swoop all of the users because MySpace had everyone, mm-hmm. literally had everyone. Yeah, and you know, Facebook was able to usurp all of that because they understood the problem. And, you know, I can say at MySpace, nobody really understood what MySpace was, or what MySpace was really trying to do. MySpace was originally a, you know, platform for bands, and then it was like, oh, now it's a platform for anyone that can, like, you know, copy-paste some HTML, CSS into, like, a, you know, a web forum. 
And, you know, then finally they decide to, you know, strike while the iron was lukewarm and go back to, you know, being a music-oriented software. Like, nobody really knew what MySpace was. And Facebook was able to come along and realize what the problem was and realize kind of what people should be using or what people wanted to use and build that. And without that, like, sort of foundational knowledge of, like, what, what people are actually looking for, which I think is only just sort of hard-earned by, you know, just, like, grinding it out and talking to people and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, products are about people. I feel like it's very difficult to look on the periphery of how something works and build it and make it work. What is that insight that Facebook had that MySpace didn't? You know, I think that they lived it and they breathed it, you know what I mean? He was there, he was, you know, living the, the college life or whatever, and understood from a fundamental level how people wanted to interact on the Internet and how that sort of social aspect of, you know, our sort of digital lives would come together. Whereas MySpace, we really didn't. We had no idea. We had no idea why people used <laughs> MySpace. They just did, and we decided to, like, you know capitalize on it or, or that was my kind of feeling as you know a lowly engineer at a massive company it didn't ever seem like they had a full grasp on what problem they were solving or, or what they were really trying to do or what the heart and soul of the company was and I think that that's evident in the way that it kind of oscillated between you know what they were doing or what audience they were really going for hmm. yeah I've watched a lot of talks that Peter Thiel has given discussing Facebook. I think he also talks about this in Zero to One, where he says that his his thesis is basically Facebook is the identity platform of the internet, is the how you associate your personal identity. And I think that's true. Going back to the Facebook versus Google question, the Google Plus versus Facebook question, it is interesting to note that you know, you have your inbox in mm. Gmail, and that, in some sense, feels like an identity. It's tough mm. for me to identify what about my Facebook identity is so much more identifying than mm. Google is. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question, and one I probably don't have the answer <laughs> to. It's hard to say. Well, tell me, more, tell me more about MySpace, because... This was, you know, it's just like, I mean, I don't want to say too early because MySpace sold for a lot of money, but I feel like, you know, one of the things Facebook had at its back was, I guess, people were getting better at understanding how product development should proceed. Maybe this was sort of mm -hmm. getting to be the post-Jobs era where, you know, Steve Jobs had sort of pioneered, here's a way to do product development. I mean, that had something to do with it. Maybe it's like post post-Gates or early Google product development, you know, you you really had this mojo of how products get developed and it that allowed Facebook to move at a faster pace because they understood that. MySpace was really in the primordial soup of the internet. It really was. And, like, I think that people forget how far back MySpace went and how, you know, like, JavaScript was like a, a you know, right. it was like, whoa, you have JavaScript. You know what I mean? Like, that was, like, how old MySpace was. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, you know, I, I don't think out of the entire lifespan of the company, anybody really understood what MySpace was or what MySpace should be doing. And maybe it was just before web products had become so defined and so concise in their, you know, sort of delivery that I think everybody kind of learned a lot from MySpace. And it was definitely a 
kind of integral part of the internet and you know is the antecedent for a lot of companies and products today but you know i think that you're you're definitely right in that that kind of or that brand of like very precise product development or or even like web products in general just didn't exist at the early onset and you know i don't think that the people of myspace ever you know even the ones that originally created it knew what they were building really they're kind of just like as far as i understood you know throwing something together and kind of seeing if it would it would stick which i guess is a lot of what you know startups are made but but <laughs> still like it just never really dawned you know struck me as they had a really solid plan for for what the product is or what where it was going hmm. colin zanster i want to thank you for coming on software engineering daily it's been a great conversation thank you so much for having me